Canucks will wrap up their stay in New York with a tilt against the Islanders this afternoon. Welcome to Canucks Hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Drance. Hello. You can read Drance's work at The Athletic. We're going to get a double dose of uh, Vancouver Athletic coverage here today because a little later in the show, your colleague, frequent contributor to Sportsnet 650. The good cop to my bad cop. That's right. Harmon Dial. Harmon Dial, who's who's living the life in New York City. We'll, we'll ask him about right it. Right now. We'll He's on the road, it. on the road with the team, so we'll get that perspective from Harmon. Always good to catch up with Harmon as well. So that's coming up at 11.30. Uh, Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery, avenuemachinery.ca. Harmon, by the way, in addition to... Uh, seeing a special guest comic live the other night in a small venue, and we'll we'll save that reveal for him. Had a lengthy one-on-one chat with Niels Hoaglander today, uh, so very curious to hear from him. Yes, what Hoaglander had to say ahead of a game in which there was a fair bit of speculation that Hoaglander might be scratched. Does not look like that will be the case. Um, and then on the Islanders side, does look like local Vancouver no Barzell, stud yeah. Matt Barzell will not play. So a break for uh, for the Canucks in that respect. Is they pretty uh, good generation of Vancouver-based players coming up right now? Eh, like Connor Bedard, Kent Johnson, Matthew Barzell, and they're like artists. They're yes. not just like they're not just like good players. Like I feel like the West Coast for a long time had like defenders and knuckle draggers. And and I don't just on Connor Bedard, and this is a sidetrack. We'll get back to it, but I don't think it's really sunk in here locally that how good this guy is, and he's from here. You know what I mean? Like, we've never had this kind of prospect come out of the city before. Forget the city. We haven't had a prospect yeah. this good come out of Western Canada, ever. And I don't know that the significance of that has necessarily sunk in, what he's doing, and the fact that, yeah, he's from here. There, there's a chance that he goes on to do in- extraordinary things in the NHL. Tyler Mott's his favorite player. <laughs> it's incredible. Oh, it is very, very good. Uh, it's Canucks Islanders at 4.30 this afternoon. Of course, you can hear it all right here on Sportsnet 650. Uh, by the way, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Now, the Canucks have already had their morning skate uh, in preparation to play the Islanders today, and they've talked to the media, including head coach Bruce Boudreaux, and we're going to do kind of a, a blind reveal here. I listened to the Boudreaux availability just before the show. Drancer was doing his thing, working the phone, so he hasn't had a chance to hear it yet. And think about Bruce Boudreaux's tenure so far in Vancouver. Still relatively short, right? It was only the beginning of December that he took over, but his media availabilities have generally been characterized by a very kind of jovial, happy-go-lucky Jovial's tone, the right word, yeah. Right? Like, he's yeah. having fun. The team has been winning mostly. He's winning the media over. The media's yeah. like, wow, he's so personable. He's making jokes. <laughs> I think this is a little bit of a different tone that we heard today yeah. from Bruce Boudreaux. So let's hear what Boudreaux had to say, and then we'll get Drancer's live reaction after the, the, the fact. blind take. Yeah, here's Bruce Boudreaux. No, well, no, actually, I did, and uh, but um, Petey sometimes is playing really good, and one of the guys in that line isn't. So I, I, I gotta. It's it's difficult sometimes. You you want to put him with the when he's your maybe your second best offensive player you got to try to find guys that uh, can finish for him I mean last game and I thought he played okay was chase on but he had four golden chances all set up by PD and we need guys at that point that hopefully can finish 
schools manager, because <coughs> we're going to be chatting with him. Um, is it how much of it's this young guy putting pressure on himself, gripping his stick? Well, I, I think that's probably part part of it. I mean, it it happens to an awful lot of second year guys. You know, I mean, uh, um, he's not playing 18 minutes a night, but it, he starts out on a regular shift and and if he misses something early he gets frustrated and then his game it affects the rest of his game so i mean uh the best thing in the world that could happen is is one bounces in off his head or something goes in the net and i think that would change things i mean you look when pods took so long to score a goal then he's got one the next game and he's getting opportunities now because his confidence is a little bit up there with with hogs it's the same way he's gotten two assists both uh, against nashville um and the, the 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 game after that or the the rest of the game he's been uh vitalized because i think he thinks a lot about you know the goals and assists whereas i want him to think just about the game and the other stuff will come when when you're playing you know well in the other aspects of the game but young guys all young guys have a problem with that quite frankly so you know. um, when the d zone play frays it's us killing ourselves i mean uh the only team i mean uh calgary's got the ability to do it and they did it to us in calgary toronto did it to us in in vancouver uh when we had great you know the goaltending was superior but uh you take the jersey game i mean uh we we shot ourselves in the foot by playing going backwards playing slow making bad passes where and it's got to be let's make one pass and get it out of the out of the zone you know i mean uh uh so when we're playing like that we're usually pretty successful is that just a reminder for you mm. okay. yeah i mean i can't teach them how to pass better you know but i mean i think it comes in the pre-preparation and readiness for the game mm. Hey, Vic, let's go to, it looks like Ben's ready. Oh, I'm sure you know Ben. Hey, Ben. You were cut from an old school clock, which is kind of a badge of honor for that. You've been around a long time. You hear a lot of phrases in today's game, but what does it mean to culture? What does culture mean to you? Oh, don't ask me that question. Um... I I hear it all the time. I just and I would I keep referring it to as playing playing the right way and doing the right things. I don't know if that's uh, culture or or what, but it's it's always with us when we were playing it, it, that word was never used. It was always we have to play the right way and we have to do the right things and we have to live the right way um, and come to the rink the right way. And and I guess today that's culture. You touched on Bo yesterday, Bruce. It's an interesting market cycle forward. It's always like there's a want for more from the captain, although he's the fourth in scoring. He's the best guy in the circle. He's got eight power play goals. Uh, do you get the sense that there's always something more that maybe the marketplace is looking for? How do you assess it this season? I mean, you've got really points. I mean, I know you only got three even strength goals since Christmas. I mean, what, what do you need to see from Bo to maybe 
when he's skating, uh, it doesn't matter whether he's scoring or not. He's he's really being a dominant player in the game. Sometimes he he just watches the game, and that's when he gets into trouble. Uh, but when he's skating, and uh, unfortunately, just before he got COVID, he was uh, he was playing the way I would watch him on on TV, and and the highlights were always about him bursting around through the middle or around defensemen and making great plays. Uh, and it took him a while to get back. I mean, uh, he'll be the, the first one that, to say that it, it's been a little bit difficult uh, since COVID. But, and he's had a lot of different wingers. I'm not blaming him. Uh, uh, but, I mean, it's, he's one player that when he looks good, he looks great. And people want that all the time. And it's hard to give it all the time. So that is Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreau speaking to the media after the team's uh, morning skate. Yeah, not not a lot of pep can't in teach, his step. Can't teach them how to pass. Can't teach them how to pass. Well, it's going to be an interesting game. You know, this Islanders team, this is a pure coin flip game. This is like a 50-50, really hard to call. The Islanders are, for me, on true talent, slightly better. They're slightly worse in the standings this year, but based on what they've done in the playoffs the last couple of seasons, based on how they play, based on how they move the puck, based on how little they permit defensively, I think they're the better team by a slim, slim margin. However, this is going to be their fourth game in six nights, and the Canucks are rested, right? They've had two days off. Well, they've had a full day off and a team practice day since, you know, getting fed in Newark like a bunch of NHL scouts at Dinosaur Barbecue. And so I'm curious to see how this one plays out because the Canucks are in this asymmetrical situation, right? If you're, if you, the Canucks are in a playoff race, but it's an asymmetrical race. They are so needy in terms of what they need from every, every game. And in this game in particular, after this, you have Toronto. That's a tough game. You don't want to go in Toronto needing that game to salvage your season, which is basically where they'd be at if they lose tonight. Um, and then they come home and they have some easier games, but games that maybe aren't as easy as they look like they are on paper. Uh, specifically, that Buffalo game, I think, is a bit of a trap game for the Canucks because of how the Buffalo Sabres skate. They have a lot of team speed. So I look through what tonight means, and you need to see this team bounce back. You need to see this team win two points. And they're going to have to do it against a team that's going to be able to neuter their forecheck. And they're going to have to find another answer that's not, you know, Demko and Prey, right? <laughs> the Demko and Prey answer might get it done game to game, but it's not going to get it done sustainably enough for the Canucks to win the way they need to to make the playoffs. And, and tonight sort of feels like a fulcrum game for this team as they sort of chart what the rest of their season and, and in particular the next two and a half weeks leading up to the trade deadline look like. And I think what we heard from Boudreaux in that uh, that media availability was some of the same frustrations we've heard from fans and listeners, Drancer, right? Where he knows, like even him hearing him talk about Bo Horvat, right? Where, hey, before I got this job, you know, I'd watch the games and he's He's taking play. He's taking the puck to the net, and he's doing all these great things. And we haven't really seen that recently. And then you talk. He, you hear him talk about, "Hey, we're killing ourselves, right? We get a lot of this is self-inflicted wounds when we don't start games right, when we don't make sharp passes uh, out of our zone." And it seems to be there's a recognition that there is upside here, but it's also there's also some very very serious flaws that are undermining the ability of the team to to consistently uh, reach that upside. And I think you know his comments about 
the forward group and specifically moving Chase on off of Pedersen's line because, hey, like, Pedersen's playing well. We can't have players that are just going to consistently miss the awesome opportunities that Pedersen sets them up for. And, like, that's maybe a little harsh for Chase on given his role in the NHL at this point, right? But I do think it's interesting that, okay, look, we need to get, uh, you know, a more offensive, a more offensively capable player with Pedersen. And the guy who's going to go in that spot is Niels Hoaglander, who does have that upside, but we also know the coach is not particularly happy with his play right yeah. now. So it's it's kind of interesting. It kind of illustrates the lack of depth at forward right now, where it's you're replacing one player that's kind of frustrated the coach with his performance with another player who has been uh, very frustrating, and Bruce Boudreaux has been vocal about that frustration with Niels Hoaglander. It's just there's not necessarily a lot of clear obvious answers when Boudreaux is filling out his lineup card right now I also loved the misanthropic take on culture like we didn't call it culture in my day I love it because yeah, he didn't even want to he didn't want to talk about it no uh, someone asked me he's like oh come on don't ask me but, about that. but also but also you know there's these there's this rash of terms that have emerged over the years that are like employed by executives coaches and and sports journalists covering bad teams right and and fans like lap it up but it means nothing. And culture is like at the very top of that list. The other one that's at the top of that list, adversity. You know it. You know I have a long-standing <laughs> yep. problem with adversity. But the idea that like they're a bad team, but like we're working on rebuilding a good culture, and it's like you bring in a player who everyone knows isn't that good. It's like, but he helps our culture. He's a culture carrier. It's like, is he infectious? Like, does does he to do different protocols and apply to this guy? Um, adversity, right? Yeah, like. You know, you, but you got to give them credit for the way they overcame the adversity of not being very good. And it all sort of lives within this patchwork of the lies that we sort of tell ourselves to live in a polite space in discussing teams that aren't very good within a sports media or, or a sports fan environment. And, you know, among them, the NHL standings, right? They're five points out. Well, sure. But five points out at this point in the season means you're on pace to be like 11 points out. Right? Like, that's how rate stats work. And, of course, if you look at the NHL standings today, it'll it'll look like the Canucks are, you know, there's only two teams between them and the second wildcard spot. But Winnipeg's ahead of them. Winnipeg has a better point percentage at the moment than Vancouver does. Um, I don't know why the league doesn't sort the standings by point percentage, which is what they use to determine the standings in a season that they ended prematurely due to the pandemic. Um, but I do think it's helpful for teams that they can be like, five points out, this is another big game. And it's like, I guess. I guess it is. And then, of course, there's the famous, just make the playoffs and anything can happen. No, it can't. No, it can't. No, it cannot. Only the best teams win Stanley Cups. Stop it. Stop it. You have to be the best team, or you have to be one of them. You have to be a special team to win the Cup. You can go deep in the playoffs. You can have a miracle run but it's not going to get your name etched on the cup forever. That's not true. It's not true. We have to stop it. And and all of these polite lies that we accept, that have creeped into the way we talk about the sport, create an environment where it's permissible to achieve less, where it's fine by fans and they tolerate and lower their standards and are willing to accept less from organizations as opposed to doing the things that over time, tried, tested, and true, result in teams building truly formidable sides. And so I loved it. 
I loved it. Bruce Boudreaux slamming culture. I'm just like, amen. Yeah. Amen. Keith, the water guy, texts in, winning creates culture, get some play- get better players, and let's win. And that's always that's always been my kind of number one critique of the culture argument is that the causation goes in a different way than everyone says, right? It's not that culture creates winning. It's that if you have a winning team stacked with good players, all of a sudden, hey, there's going to be a pretty good culture on that team because everyone likes winning and it's way easier to get along and be a professional when you're winning games. But I did think it was interesting you know, the way Bruce Boudreaux kind of flipped it around and said, okay, we didn't talk about culture. We talked about doing things the right way. And obviously there are, you know, professionalism is real, right? And you need to have that. But it, it's, that is kind of the baseline expectation. And it's not some magic formula that all of a sudden is going to elevate a mediocre team because they have the right culture, right? Like, yes, you need your players to be professionals, to do things the right way, as Bruce Boudreaux said, but somehow that's kind of gotten warped to, you know, oh, well, if if you have this magic, perfect culture, then all of a sudden you're going to have a winning team. Yeah. And I mean, you do want a team that it can outperform, but, you know, it does seem to it, first of all, it stems from the best players, right? Like, culture does not come from the fourth line no. up. It comes from the top down. And and I think it comes from the top down beyond the players, but it can come from the players irrespective of how the organization functions. Um, you know, loathe to use my old Panthers as an example, but it's not like the, you know, team that now coaches itself to be super elite, right, stemmed from this stable situation where there was no organizational turmoil. Right. I mean, it's not like they haven't been through a, a thing or two behind the bench and in the in the halls of management in Florida over the past six years. And nonetheless, those guys found a way to become the players that they are, uh, you know, Dreisaitl and McDavid, the way they push each other. And then the way that players like Paul Yarvey and Nurse and some of the some of the other players around them end up leveling up, too, because you have to match that work ethic. We saw it with the twins in Vancouver. So, you know, I'm not I'm not deriding culture entirely, but I do think that. You know, the the source of it ultimately is how dialed in are your best players, how competitive are they, and how do they demand accountability from within their group? Like that's that's the whole that's the whole sort of uh, formula as far as I'm concerned. Putting players into a position to succeed and making sure that your best players have attributes that translate not just into points, not just into highlight reel moments, but winning. Yes. Driving winning is the ultimate goal, obviously. And that's like banal to say, but there are about overcoming adversity with (laughs) your stellar culture. (laughs) No, but there are, you know, beyond, as you said, beyond (laughs) point production, there are other things you do to drive winning. Right. And, you know, we were having just a quick chat um, off the air before the show, just kind of running through teams that have had success, you know, in the past decade, decade and a half in the NHL. And like you brought up the Boston Bruins. And I think Patrice Bergeron might be the ultimate example of that. Totally. Right? Where even when he wasn't producing incredible offensive numbers, and he's had very, very good offensive seasons, he was doing things that just had a tremendous impact on his team winning a ton of games. Right. And those are the types of players you, you need the elite skill level. Absolutely. But you also need to find those. You know, I, I don't want to say role players because obviously Patrice Bergeron's not a role player. He's an elite number one center. But those guys who check a ton of the other boxes to put your team consistently in a position in a position to succeed. And again, that to me is what will build the culture, right? When you have players who are capable of driving those results, if they're also incredible leaders, right? And they're also incredible teachers and incredible role models to the young players. Hey, that's awesome. That's a bonus. 
But if you can find those players, again, Patrice Bergeron is kind of the ultimate example of it, but those types of players who bring that kind of hidden value night after night, that's going to set you up to, you know, have everyone on your team doing things the right way and eventually develop that well, culture more than anything else. In the Bruin, in the prime years of the Bruins, like when they had a defense that was actually good as opposed to what they're icing these days, um, what I loved about watching them play, and yes, I got to a point where I actually loved watching the Bruins play, was the way that when they forced a turnover in the neutral zone, right? Like they'd, they'd skate back to force a turnover in the neutral zone, and the moment they got it, their eyes lit up and their energy level surged as if for another team they, they were getting a chance on the power play. It was like this unsexy phase of the game that they knew was really conducive to, to punishing opponents' mistakes, and their eyes were lighting up like they were getting power play time. And that was, you know, to a man, up and down the lineup. That's when you start to be – that's when you start to cook with oil. Like, that's when you start to be on to something. And there's no question in my mind, and having talked to a variety of players who went through that system over the years um, – you know, that that stems back to Patrice Bergeron himself. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, another thing we heard from Bruce Boudreaux in that media availability was, you know, why do they sometimes get hemmed in their own, own zone, you know, making those kinds of turnovers, trying to break out? He said, first of all, I can't teach them how to pass better, which is a pretty, a pretty good line, I thought, from the head coach. And he also said, you Savage. know, it comes from preparation and what you're and what they're doing to get ready for the game. And that's something we heard uh, on Canuck Central, when JT Miller joined uh, Sat and, and Riccio last night, was just talking about, you know, they asked him, okay, what's going on with these slow starts? And he he just said, you know, it's on us, ultimately. And I know whenever you do see slow starts consistently from a team, there's always, you know, oh, well, hey, it's the coach. It's the coach's job to get them ready to play. But at a certain point, it does have to fall on the individual players. <laughs> but like, you, you don't need to be told, hey, we've got another NHL game, guys. You better be ready to play by the coach. You know who's the most likely team to give up the first goal in a game? The less good team? The team that's not as good. The team that's not as good. Like, this is one of those things where we, you know, search for answers and try to analyze, and it's like sometimes the simplest answer is the one that's in front of you. Like, who's the team that opens the scoring more often? It's the team that's better. It's the team that's better. Um, You know, I do think that tonight's a game that the Canucks are going to have to work in, right? Like, this is not a game that's going to be fun. This is going to be one of those games you have to work. I'm a little bit skeptical about this group's capacity in those types of games. I feel like in the games that they have to work in, they, they sometimes don't. And that's a tough, that's a harsh criticism to lobby at a team, but it's, I think, shown itself to be relatively true throughout this season. Um I'd like to see them, if, if they're going to win tonight, if they're going to go on the type of run that isn't a polite lie, but that becomes meaningful, that becomes worth taking more seriously than we did on Monday, right? They need to win some of those games where they have to work, and tonight's going to be one. So, you know, I, I'm, loathe to, I'm loathe to put all those stakes on a game like tonight, especially for an organization that all season we've seen them make franchise altering decisions based on the run of play over a small sample of games and I think that's a wild way to run your franchise like I just I will never understand I will never understand why the team needed to go on into the rut that it did for them to change coach and general manager like I'll never understand that timeline I will never understand the idea that they uh, you know 
are waiting to see what this team can do before the deadline or, or that they're it's owed to the room when they're five points out <laughs> at this stage of the season. Um, like I'll never understand that, but you know, I do think, I do think tonight's an important game for this team to show, you know, the metal to bounce back and the metal to outwork an opponent that we know is going to come with their lunch pail. Yeah. It's a, you got to erase the memory of that game against New Jersey, yeah. right? Like right away, right away in this game from the opening puck drop, you have to try to prove that that game was an aberration, right? And it hasn't been an aberration because we've seen it recently against Anaheim, but that's the task they've set for themselves by having those types of performances. You're always kind of under the gun to say, hey, no, that's not the real us, actually. Well, this and, is the real And us. against this team at home, yeah, right? So it's like... And the Islanders are not going to have their best offensive player, most likely. Not confirmed, but we don't expect Matt Barzil to play at this point. Um, but with the way the Canucks are surrendering scoring chances of late, every team's an elite offensive team when they play the Canucks, too. Right now. Right now. Over the last 10 games, you know, the San Jose Sharks can pull crazy comebacks, right? I mean, that's who this Canucks team is right now. They're surrendering a lot. I, I you know, need to play hard, need to play clean. Need to at, need to be willing to work in a game that requires it, and need to not lean on Demko. You know, Demko and Prey. I'm I'm sick of that. I, I want to see this team take a game by the scruff of its neck and work and earn it. And we'll see. We'll see tonight. Uh, more Canucks talk coming up on the other side. Harmon Dial from the Athletic will join us as we continue to look ahead to the Canucks and the Islanders coming up at 4:30 this afternoon. It is Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the show, Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and Thomas Drance will be joined momentarily by Harmon Dial, a little uh, athletic takeover of the Canucks <laughs> Hour here on Sportsnet 650. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. AvenueMachinery.ca. Quickly, before we get to harm, uh, we just had a little mini-conversation off the top of the show about Connor Bedard and his status as, you know, a, a phenomenal prospect who is also from Vancouver and how rare that is. And, you know, a lot of people brought up uh, Joe Sackick, of course, Burnaby Joe. No, we did not forget about Burnaby Joe and look, we're not saying Connor Bedard is going is going to going going to go on and surpass the career, the incredible career of Joe Sakic. But as a prospect, he's in a different category. Joe Sakic was the 15th overall pick in his draft year, so he was not hyped or regarded in the same way as this young phenom like Connor Bedard is right now. That that was our point. Drew. Connor Bedard has been famous in hockey since he was 14. You yes. know, like that's it's a different type of thing. It's just a different type of thing. Joe Sakic became. One of the greatest offensive players ever. Yes. Shout out to Joe Sackick. We're, to... we're not trying to <laughs> also no, he's built... diminish his career in any way. Also, he's built the best team in hockey. Yeah. I mean, that is the best team in hockey, that Colorado Avalanche team. So, you know, not not to besmirch a, a great executive and player and Canadian Olympian and a guy who has a street named after him in, the, in, in this greater metropolitan area. Um, he just wasn't at the age of 14, 15, 16 regarded the way Bedard has been. No one, no one ever has been coming out of, and not just Vancouver, Western Canada. The yeah. best prospect in the history of Western Canada is Connor Bedard. He was not the next big thing in the way that uh, Connor Bedard is right now. All right, now joining us, he is on the road for this Canucks swing through New York and then stopping off in Toronto as well. Writes for the Athletic Vancouver, Harmon Dial. Harmon, thanks for joining us. How are you? 
I'm uh, I'm doing all right. I had someone uh, try to break into my hotel room at 6 a.m., so that was wow. uh, quite the wake-up call. But uh, otherwise, I'm uh, doing fine. <laughs> who, who was it? I, I don't know. It, it, I was legitimately just – I'm a light sleeper, so as I was kind of like turning – um, I saw my door open and some random white guy was just um, <laughs> standing there <laughs> and I and I just like yelled at him um, and, uh, and and he was like he just like frantically turned around closed the door and left so, uh. oh my well, goodness well I, I hope other than that the the New York road trip experience has been pretty good for you Harm. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's been good. Uh, it's been good. Other than that, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's been solid. I, I've really enjoyed it up until about like five seconds there, where I had to like yell and and basically figure out what what was going on. <laughs> well, we're we're glad that nothing came of it. Uh, we hope your morning has taken a turn for the better. Uh, you've been out in Belmont this morning. What did you see at Canucks Morning Skate? What are you expecting? from the team tonight and how were the vibes vibe check yeah yeah it was it was interesting because yesterday at practice we obviously saw uh hoaglander and uh di giuseppe sort of rotating in it and uh when i asked boudreau yesterday about which one of those two was going to draw in boudreau said well di giuseppe would would if he were in the lineup sort of slot into the top six next to Pedersen and garland but today in, in line rushes um it was just Essentially, Hoaglander and DiGiuseppe sort of stayed out uh, to do extra work. So um, I'd expect uh, Hoaglander to kind of uh, draw into the uh, draw into the lineup, stay in there. I mean, um, and um, it was interesting. I was able to kind of have um, after the skate a, a one-on-one conversation with him and just kind of get his feeling on um, the slump that he's kind of been through. But overall, on a team level, I think. Um, I'm just really interested to see how they respond after um, the way the, the the way the game against New Jersey went. Because again, I've mentioned this before, Boudreaux was as uh, I think frustrated and disappointed and angry as I've ever seen him after a game after that uh, loss to New Jersey. So you know he's going to be looking for some kind of emotional response, and he's kind of been. Um, He's just, he's just, I think, a little bit sick of the inconsistent starts. And I think how they start against the Islanders um, is going to say a lot about how not only this game shapes out, but the road trip as, the rest of the road trip as a whole. And with Niels Hoaglander, Harmon, you, know, you mentioned you got a chance to catch up with him after practice. It, it, it's a really interesting position because, you know, Bruce Boudreaux has not been shy about sharing some of his thoughts about Hoaglander with the media, and he talked about him again today after practice. But at the same time, you know, Hoaglander gets a chance to play with two really good offensive players tonight in Pedersen and Garland. When you watch Niels Hoaglander, what are you seeing that's not clicking with him right now? I just think a lot of it really does come down to uh, finishing. And this was something that he kind of mentioned as well, that he uh, feels that he's actually creating a lot of possession and a lot of chances, but um, that it's just kind of been the finishing and that he's maybe been lacking the decisiveness and the kind of killer instinct a little bit um, when he does kind of get the puck in the slot. And when you do sort of look into the underlying numbers, he's obviously gone 20 games without a goal, but in that sort of time frame. 
Um, his individual shot and scoring chance rates have basically been identical compared to where it was uh, through the first 34 games of the season when he was was productive as uh, usual. And even when you look at some of his play driving numbers, we're talking about a player that is still helping his line out shooting out chance uh, opponents by really wide margins. So this isn't a case of Hoaglander just mysteriously forgetting how to uh, how to play and how, how to drive offense. And what's interesting is I think all parties kind of recognize that. Uh, Hoaglander kind of mentioned that um, him and Boudreaux haven't really even talked about the offense because they both know that'll turn around. Most of the work in conversations have actually been away from the puck defensively and, and about um, habits such as his defensive zone positioning, uh, making more instinctual reads away from the puck. Um, he said there's been a bit of an adjustment for him with some of the slight systems tweaks. Um, when Boudreaux took over. So I think those finer details away from the puck um, are are the more pressing sort of concern in terms of earning trust. Um, because I think with the offense, it's just a matter of some of the fortune um, sort of reversing. And, um, and and I do think he'll, he'll rebound there. I think bigger picture, you're more sort of um, looking for him to improve his two-way details. With what you've seen on this road trip overall right you've seen two games live now you've seen a, uh, two Canucks practices where wh- like what has been your especially because we haven't been a- been around and you've been able to talk to the players what what has the what what has the overall tone been as you've seen it around this team right now do, do they look to you like a team coming together on the verge of of doing something special I think they're honestly the vibes are pretty similar to what we've kind of been feeling on the outside in terms of they feel like they're building a bit of positive momentum, but they still can't really explain um, the inconsistency in in the volatility. And I think that uh, was really reflected in um, in talking to uh, I think Connor Garland after uh, after the loss against the Devils, where he didn't quite seem to have. Um, an explanation for the team's starts and, and, and why they um, haven't uh, haven't always been prepared. And I think uh, the truth is, if they had the answer, they probably would have been able to figure it out by now. And so I, I think they're sort of in a, in a stage right now, too, where I think this team, when Boudreaux initially took over, they obviously went on that massive initial tear, and then they flirted with mostly playing 500 hockey through, I think, uh, um, January and uh, and maybe the first half of February, and then uh, up until the Rangers game, they started to kind of pick things up again in the in the wins column. But there were still sort of holes and inconsistencies there in terms of their defensive performance. And then um, to lose again against New Jersey, I think they they too are sort of figuring out is this a stretch right now where we're going to fall back into playing 500 hockey and we're not going to be able to make up any ground. Or are we going to be able to kind of pull together and string a bunch of wins together and really start to build our confidence? And I think that's where, you know, I don't get the sense that the team one way or another really has the answer themselves. And they, they're kind of waiting to see how they respond themselves, too. With regards to their defensive play of late, and, and you're a guy who notices systems stuff better than just about any hockey writer I've ever uh, worked with. Uh, what are you seeing? Why are the Canucks surrendering so much against of late? I think part of it is I find, and I, and I think this has been more of a trend just with the team kind of opening it up a little bit more with their forecheck. I think forwards are finding it easy easier to get behind Vancouver's defense. You're seeing 
Um, like I think back to, for instance, the Rangers game and, and the number of chances that uh, they had where uh, someone like Chris Kreider with speed would be able to um, get in behind Vancouver's defenders and someone like uh, Lafreniere would kind of just send a, a long bomb pass, maybe a bank off the end boards, um, or there would be a sort of um, partial breakaways and things like that. It just feels like the team defending transition, I think, um, is starting to... Um, it's just not as tight as they were um, in the early parts of the season, right? And I think that's why um, in the early parts of the season, they were so conservative with their forecheck and they were able to kind of um, have um, less gaps between their forwards and defensemen. So their forwards were reloading really well and the defensemen were able to kind of play tighter gaps as well and they were kind of more structured. And I think obviously the, the issue with that sort of style early on in the season was that they were generating nothing offensively so now Boudreaux obviously came up and he turned the aggression dial up a little bit so they're creating more offensively but now they're starting to give that uh give things back up give more chances up in transition defense and I think that's where New Jersey especially kind of gave the Canucks fits um off the rush and with their speed um they kind of came at Vancouver in waves and they were able to create a lot of I think controlled entries into the zone so I think that's the biggest difference that I've maybe noticed in, in the last couple of games is just how much teams are starting to create and transition against uh, the Canucks. In conversation with Harmon Dial of The Athletic here on Canucks Hour, and, you know, sticking on the, the theme of defensive results, look, it's not fair to pin, obviously, the result on uh, against the Devils on Oliver ekman Larson and Tyler Myers specifically, but they did both have notable miscues in that game that led to goals. And it's interesting because the play of that pairing has been such a notable, notable success and a positive story for the Canucks for much of this year. But how much of a concern is it that we are kind of seeing maybe a little bit of regression from that pairing? Because look, we know with the amount of money committed to those two players, if their performance starts to dip a little bit, that could be serious trouble for, for the Canucks in years to come. Yeah, and it's it's a matter of, I think, when you look at how this team has kind of been able to turn the tide, uh, you look at their 5-5 five and five results for most of the season, um, for the Canucks as a whole, they've been a lot better of an even-strength team than in many years in the past. And obviously what's kind of sunk them for most of the year has been special teams and the penalty kill in particular. But I think a big part of the Canucks improving as a 5-5 five and five club has been that OEL Myers pair um, being strong for most of the season against the opposition's best players. Now, if they start slipping and we continue seeing them, you know, regress and, and um, them more permissive off the rush, uh, them a bit more passive, them struggling to move the puck a little bit more, I think that would spell massive trouble for the Canucks. Um, for obviously, beyond the season, but obviously even for this campaign in terms of their playoff push, because really I think. This back end, we know we know what the Canucks have in, in Quinn Hughes, and, and that pair is is always going to um, drive a lot of offense. But behind them, the difference between Vancouver's back end being competent and just good enough to to maybe go on a bit of a run, and then and their back end being potentially catastrophically bad. Uh, is the status of the sort of uh, the OEL Myers pair and, and how solid can they be? Because again, they take on the matchups burden against the opposition's, opposition's best uh, players. So I think that's such a key um, foundational sort of part of Vancouver's lineup. And yeah, it, uh, it it is concerning if we start to see their form continue to slip. Harmon, what should the team do with Nils Hoaglander here? Should he be in play ahead of the trade deadline? 
I don't think so. I, I'm when you have a player that's 21 and he has the type of rookie season that uh, Hoaglander did, where he not not only um, created a ton of offense, but he did it all at five on five. We're talking about a player who was top 50 in the NHL um, for five on five points. Uh, to do that at 20 years old and and to also drive play as well as he did for his line, um, that's. I think that's a really special piece. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is young players go through these ups and downs and these um, droughts all the time. I mean, Bo Horvat in his uh, sophomore season went 27 games without a goal. Uh, So it's not as if it took JT Miller to kind of figure things out. Um, So I think we have to remember how young Hoaglander is, um, still 21. And the other sort of thing is, Again, it's it's a low ebb in, in his value if you are looking to yep. deal him. So I, I just I don't think it makes any sense for for the Canucks to kind of explore uh, moving uh, moving him right now. I think he's a piece that you continue to try and work with, um, especially because his underlying profile sort of suggests that um, once the bounces start to go in his favor, um, that the results will will come. It's not a matter of his games totally falling off the face of the map. Um, he just needs to work on the finishing and, and things should start to trend in the right direction again. All right, Harmon, you've been in New York for a week. Tell us your best story. What's been the most fun you've had on the island of Manhattan uh, over the course of the past six days? So Comedy Cellar, by the way, thanks for the recommendation, Trancer, on uh, Tuesday <laughs> night. Um, so it's like a small, intimate sort of like bar sort of area. It's only, I think, like 30 to 50 people there. And um, they don't announce their performers ahead of time, but it ended up uh, being that Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock uh, ended up performing together. And um, no big Chappelle, deal. As he's, yeah, and Chappelle, as he's coming off stage, I was so close that uh, he shook my hand. So uh, I'm not gonna lie, that was a pretty, uh, pretty funny experience there. That's awesome, man. Well, I'm glad you've had fun. I'm looking forward to reading your Hoaglander piece going up soon at theAthletic.com. So suggest everyone check it out. Enjoy Belmont tonight. Uh, say hi to Arthur and Kevin for me and uh, and enjoy the game. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. That is Harmon Dial, Drancer's uh, athletic colleague, on the road with the team. And, yeah, I mean, if you're going to, you know, roll the dice at the Comedy Cellar, oh, you know, maybe I'll see an up-and-coming local comic. Maybe somebody will do a drop-in. Uh, Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock. Not a bad outcome there as your surprise drop-in at the comedy show in New York. Couldn't even get tickets for that. Like, if they were selling no. it as a as Absolutely a show, not. it would be sold out. It would be 300 bucks on the secondary market. Incredible. Yeah, it would be. Got com- in for 15 bucks. yeah. Completely Sweet. outrageous. Not, not too shabby. And I'm glad he survived the break-in. So, <laughs> he's dead on about Niels Hoaglander, by the way. Like, I know the fit hasn't been great since management and coaching changed, but... 21 years old, and he legitimately drives offense five on five. He's got a lot of work to do on the details in his game. That was true before, too. Remember earlier in the season, people were like, why doesn't he play on the PK? And I never really bought that one. And now I think we're seeing why. Now I think we understand a little bit better. Certainly those cries have stopped. But it doesn't change the fact that Hoaglander is on an ELC. He's on an ELC again next season. He provides tremendous value. To this club, unless you are getting the equivalent defenseman who has more upside, frankly, than Hoaglander does, and that's almost impossible to find. No one's trading that piece. I don't. I just don't. I don't see the logic in moving him. I don't see how it makes you better. That's not. That's not the type of trade that you can win if you lose. Like this, this team needs to be making the trades that you can win even if you lose it. They need to be making the trades that clear out cap commitments. 
um, and bring value back ideally, but that even that is secondary uh, for me, although not with a piece as good as JT Miller, um, but what with, the, with any other piece. So I do think... I do think that he's dead on with Hoaglander. The idea that Hoaglander could be dealt in the next two and a half weeks has to be one of the most concerning bit, like drips and drabs of Canucks news going around at the moment. Well, and with Hoaglander, I just don't think the Canucks are at the point in their cycle of building where you're that concerned with the fit of a player like Niels Hoaglander. Yeah. Right? No you, you, know, you, you don't have to, oh, I don't think he's a fit. Well, you don't know what your roster is going to look like in two years. And then all of a sudden, maybe he is a fit and he has this upside. So... I don't. I wouldn't understand the rush to be rid of a player like Niels Hoagland. And we've seen the upside and the skill and and the work rate. The work rate and look, you know, depending on how his usage develops here and under Bruce Boudreau and going into next season, he might be available on a very very affordable contract after his ELC expires as well. So you've got that factor. And then as I said. It, this is not as if you're looking to put the finishing touches on a Stanley Cup roster, right? And you say, ah, we have this player who has upside, but he's just not a great fit with what we're trying to build. Again, there's still so much uncertainty around exactly what you're trying to build. Unless somebody is just in love with Niels Hoaglander out there and, and completely blows you away with an offer, I, I would much rather keep him in-house, let him develop, let him show off that upside or, or grow into that upside more consistently Super hard, Super hard to win a Hoaglander deal. Like, super difficult. I don't see the Canucks... Winning a Hoaglander deal, straight up. I, I just, I, I think you'd have to get such a special piece back. Um, that's that's the last thing. Like on 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 the list of ten things the Canucks should look to accomplish before the deadline. That's not on it. That's not on it. So interesting, and I, I'm curious to read Harmon's take on it today. I know that he talked to Bo Horvat too about his sophomore year struggles. Uh, so that'll be a great piece. Up yeah, that will be really interesting to hear, considering how much Niels Hoaglander has been kind of in the news, right? Mm -hmm. Because, of, you know, for most players on the Canucks, it's, they've been in the news because of trade rumors. That hasn't real. we're talking about it right That's now. That's relatively that, new. Yeah, that hasn't really developed yet for Niels Hoaglander. It's been because, you know, the coach has been pretty pointed uh, about talking about some of the faults he sees in Hoaglander's play right now. And I can imagine for a young player going through that for the first time in the NHL would be really challenging, especially when you consider, you know, Niels Hoaglander, his rookie season – it was tough for the team, but it was extremely positive for him, right? And he got a lot of love, and he got a lot of positive attention. And now all of a sudden to be in the opposite position where your coach is, you know, not hesitating to go out there and say, yeah, like he gets distracted because he doesn't score. You know, he needs to work on this. He needs to work on that. That's a challenging spot to be in for a really young player still. 100%. And question your hockey sense too, right? I mean, it's been a rough ride, I think, for Niels Hoaglander. Um, but... I believe in the player. I like really good players. Niels Hoaglander is a really good player. He hasn't fully arrived as what he might be, but you know, I see a guy. I see a guy who I think could be one of those, you know, middle six, ideally third line type drivers. Like I, I sort of wonder if you can get to you know a player who approximates what Matt Zuccarello brought to the New York Rangers when he was on that third line with Derek Brassard and, and Benoit Pouliot. Right. And that was a really good line for them as they made the Stanley Cup final back in 2012. Um, that was one of the NHL's best third lines. That's the type of guy who I think can help you drive that sort of sort of line. You get like a, a really smart sort of middle six center, combine it with a, a one of those veteran cast off guys, you know, like one of those guys who can be better for you than they have been elsewhere. And you can have a pretty affordable line, especially if you manage his second contract the right way. So. That, to me, is the type of fit that he can offer down the road. He does need to hammer out some of the details in his defensive play, but 
Uh, I mean, he's going to do it. He works so hard. He is humble, capable of learning, takes instructions, um, you know, moving off of a player who can bring that value to your organization. I, I don't see how that accelerates anything for this team. And to be fair to Boudreaux, you know, it wasn't that long ago that Pod Colson was in a slump. His ice time was declining as well, and he's turned that around, and now Boudreaux's talking positively about Pod Colson and how hard he works, and he's giving him more opportunities and all of that. He's given Hoaglander an opportunity here with Pedersen and Garland. So I don't think this is a situation where the coach has kind of definitively made up his mind on the player. I think this is salvageable, very much so, for Niels Hoaglander. And if, if he's the one who finishes one of those uh, grade-A chances that Pedersen creates tonight... I think he'll be rewarded appropriately with more ice time well, from the coach. That line, that line is giving up a lot of inches and a lot of pounds to anyone they're going to face on on a really large Islanders team. Um, that can be an advantage. You can play inside if you are more skilled and and faster and smaller, a lower center of gravity than your opposition. But I do think it's going to be a challenge, and how they hold up uh, will be fascinating to watch, particularly because this Islanders team has that you know tactical noose to get the extra hits in when they can, right? So that's going to be a subplot of this game, too, that I'm going to be watching closely tonight. It is the Canucks versus the Islanders, 4.30 Pacific time this afternoon. Of course, you'll be able to hear all of the game day coverage right here on Sportsnet 650. Drancer and myself will be back, back to our regular time at noon tomorrow to break it down. The People's Show with Bick Nazar and Randy Janda is coming up next. You've got it on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.